spoiler alert. We will be going through this with the knowledge of all the books and the movies, so just expect spoilers always. If you're listening to this and you want to save the plot twist and the ending, this is not for you. We figure you have all at least passed some of your owls. Welcome to the Time Turner, Harry Potter In-Depth. We're siblings who love Harry Potter. Hello. Hello. Today, Alyssa and I are covering chapters 9 through 12 of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban on the Time Turner, Harry Potter in Death. We will be looking for foreshadowing, Easter eggs, themes, and talk about big questions we have, particularly how any nuggets in these chapters tie to the endgame. But first, Ken needs to channel our inner Professor Vince and remind ourselves what happened in chapters five through eight of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. In the last episode, we talked about how Mr. Weasley warned Harry about Sirius and implored him to not go looking for the escaped murderer. Professor Lupin is introduced as the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, and Hagrid is named the Professor for the Care of Magical Creatures. Harry, Ron, and Hermione have their first divination class, where Trelawney was given mixed marks for her predictions. Harry gains the respect and goes for a ride on Buckbeak while Malfoy is attacked after treating the animal badly. The Defense Against the Dark Arts class, minus Harry and Hermione, fight a Boggart. Harry and Lupin have a heart-to-heart, and the fat lady is attacked by Sirius Black. So now, let's grab our firebolts, which we actually get this time, and dodge our bludgers as we work through who scored and who fell off their broom in chapters 9 through 12 of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Chapter 9. The professor searches the school for Sirius Black while the kids spend the night in the Great Hall. Snape suggests to Dumbledore that someone in the school is helping Black. Harry overhears this, but Harry and the readers alike don't know who Snape is talking about. We, of course, later find out that Snape is suggesting that Lupin, Sirius's boyhood friend, is helping him get inside the castle. Dumbledore dismisses Snape's accusation and says that no one in the castle would be trying to help Sirius. Sir Cadogan has taken over as the portrait protector for the Gryffindor common room and keeps changing the password even numerous times a day, an issue that will later help Sirius in his efforts to get into the common room. Sometimes too much security doesn't actually help matters. And this is absolutely one of those times. Professor McGonagall tries to get Harry to not play Quidditch, but he agrees, but agrees to allow him to continue after Harry puts up the bare minimum amount of disagreement. I mean, he barely had to say no before she's like, you're right, you should be able to play. It wasn't really an effort, right? It was like a formality, I would say. She had to say something. Right. It's like when the lawyers tell you, you have to say this so we can say you said it. She said her bitch. She's like, you shouldn't. Lawyers play. don't say that. What are you talking about? All right. TV lawyers. Fine. Real <laughs> lawyers don't. Whatever. <laughs> she said what she needed to say so she could, so that the school could say, we told Harry it's not safe. But we all know McGonagall wants Harry to play. And after Harry just says, but she's like, you're right. You should play. Draco uses his injury from Buckbeak as an excuse to delay the match. So Gryffindor will be playing Hufflepuff instead of Slytherin. More on the uh, hypocrisy of Quidditch later. 
Harry goes to his defense against the Dark Arts class, where Snape is teaching in place of Lupin, and has the class turn to page 394, which is possibly the most quoted Alan Rickman line and up there is among the best Harry Potter lines. Snape teaches the class about werewolves, unbeknownst to everyone but Hermione. This is a nice little hint he's trying to give the readers and the students alike about Lupin's illness. During the Quidditch match, the mentors attack and Harry falls off his broom. He wakes up in the hospital wing. Gryffindor has lost the match, but even more worrisome, his broomstick flew away and went into the Whomping Willow where it was destroyed. Chapter 10. Harry is utterly devastated about his broom, which is understandable. And everyone's trying to cheer him up, including Ginny, who made him a lovely sinking card. How sweet. So sweet. Ron and Hermione um, are being great friends, and they're hanging out in the hospital wing with Harry as he recovers, only leaving at night. But privately, secretly, Harry is starting to get worried about the grip. And um, he's not sure if this is a death omen or if he's freaking out unnecessarily, but this is starting to take place and take root in Harry's mind. Harry also realizes what he's hearing when the Dementors get near him. He's hearing his mother's murder by Voldemort. And um, that, that's quite traumatizing for Harry. I think that's going to grow on in this book, that it's a battle for Harry on wanting to hear his mother versus the trauma of hearing the murder over and over again. Professor Lupin does return, though, and although he looks skinny and tired, the kids are thrilled to have him back in teaching. The kids have a very funny uh, back and forth about Professor Snape assigning this werewolf essay and Professor Lupin being confused, um, but ultimately he decides that the kids don't have to complete the homework, although Hermione, true to form, very on brand, has already finished the assignment. I, I mean, I get that from the kids' perspective and also like from an administrative perspective. What's Snape going to do, like force Lupin to accept the grades he gives? No, like it, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. Lupin's Although, no right to cancel the assignment. Maybe, but practically, he can give them all detention and potions. So, Well, sure. Right. The only thing he could do is affect their potions grade. And like, I guess he probably would do that. So, yeah. They're probably going to fail anyways. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like every year Dumbledore has to convince Snape not to fail Harry anyway. So, you know, what, what's Harry a, what's a little bit Gryffindor more pushing? Class. Right. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Professor Lupin keeps Harry after class and they speak about the Dementors and we learn more about that. Harry asks Professor Lupin if the reason that the Dementors affect him so much, he, he faints, he passes out and no one else does, is that because he's weak? And Professor Lupin says, no, it has nothing to do with weakness. Harry has more horrors in his life than other people. Harry confides in Professor Lupin that Harry can hear Voldemort murdering his mom when the Dementors get too close. And Lupin seems shook by this. We also learn about how awful Azkaban is. And Azkaban will play prominently in several books. So it's important that we're getting this education now. But it's truly an awful place. It's not your run-of-the-mill county jail or your um, country club federal prison. (laughs) Harry, (laughs) yeah. Harry like, asks, that's a comparison we're going to make? Well, I don't think it's even close to that. So it's, a, it's an apt comparison. 
because okay, fair enough. they're very different. Harry asks Professor Lupin to teach him how to fight Dementors. And Professor Lupin agrees. He's asked me, well, but not until next term because he has a lot going on. He, he picked a bad time to fall ill, he says. With that, Harry's mood starts improving. But now it's Hogsmeade time again, and Harry still can't go. Alas, one of my favorite terms from, uh, from Harry Potter, alas, I wouldn't keep up with one. Fred and George find Harry, and they give him the Marauder's Map. I'm going to rephrase that. Fred and George find Harry and give him the Marauder's Map, written by Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, Fawns. A map showing every detail of the Hogwarts grounds, secret entrances, and tiny ink dots moving around it with names of people in the school. Very cool. So Harry takes us and he goes on an adventure. I wanted to point out here, um, there's a really, really cool bit of magic where he goes to one of the secret passageways and there is a stone witch and he doesn't know what to do next. And the map tells him what to do. It has a little um, charm or whatever it is in a little, you can picture like a thought bubble it, and it gives him the charm and Harry says it and it opens, which is Incredible. very, very neat. I, stuff like that would be wonderful to have in real life. We need a Marauders so back cool. in real life. Very, very cool. Harry then finds himself after going through the secret passageway um, to the cellar of Honeydukes, the candy store. And we get some great lines, great narrative describing the candies. And I know Kenny loves that because he always likes to end our episodes with food when we can find it. Who doesn't want to end the episode on food? How we should start the episodes on food, have food in the middle. Let's just make this a food podcast. Harry I'm Potter and food, do Harry Potter. my two favorite things. So I See? understand exactly. that. Harry surprises Ron and Hermione as they're trying to pick out a present for Harry. And Harry explains how he got there. Hermione is rightfully concerned about Sirius using the passageways. Harry uses the logic that, well, he can't, Sirius can't get into any of them. Especially this one that has the whopping willow over the entrance which is okay logic, except for the gigantic missing piece that he has about the Animagus and that Sirius knows everything there is to know about the Wapping Willow, of course. Hermione doesn't completely agree with the logic and is still concerned about Harry being there thinking it is unsafe. However, she doesn't ignore him completely, and they go to Three Broomsticks, and we learn that Ron has a little bit of a crush on Madame Rosmerta, the bartender. I don't know that they use the word bartender or the owner, but they do something else, but that's what she is. A crush that he will not get over by in this book. That is a crush he keeps for the entire series. I think we can say she's probably hot. This is like not a deep love type of crush. This is a no. This is a boy with the hot bartender. Yeah, I think she's described curvy. I think she's described as pretty. Like she's, she's you know, she's, hot. She, she, she's there for Ron's male gaze. She's hot. Yes. Harry tries butterbeer, which he says is the most delicious thing he'd ever tasted. Um, anecdote we had a Harry Potter party years ago, like, uh, 10, 15 years ago. And our mother made a butterbeer using actual liquor and it was 
gross, absolutely disgusting. And it could not have been anybody's favorite thing in the world. But Ken and I, last year, I think, went to Harry Potter World in Orlando. And we had butterbeer. And Kenny liked it, didn't love it. I loved it. It was the frozen kinds, which you have to have. You can't have caught anything in Orlando in the summer. But um, I thought it was really good. Yeah, you, de- you definitely liked it a lot more than I did. I think for me, I liked the idea of drinking butterbeer more than I liked the drink itself. But sometimes it's all you need to enjoy the meal. Well, yeah. And it's just like a, it's very cream soda-esque, which I, right. I like cream soda. See, I'm not a cream soda person. Well, there you go. Anyways, Harry drinks his butterbeer. He loves it. He's having his little love fest with the drink, which I understand. And then the trio overhears Flitwick, McGonagall, Hagrid, Fudge, and Rosemary sitting together and talking about Sirius Black. One of the like low-key interesting things in this chapter is that you hear their drink orders. And um, I like thinking about their drink orders and what that means. So we see that, I'm flipping through my book so I get it right. We see that Professor McGonagall ordered a small gilly water. Hagrid ordered four pints of mold mead. Professor Flitwick ordered a cherry syrup and soda with ice and umbrella, which I'm guessing is sort of like a Shirley Temple. Yeah, that was my and, thought as well. Yeah, which sounds great. And the minister offered ordered a red currant rum, straight up. <laughs> so I just think it is interesting and we could talk more about that later but as we're going through the summary i am pointing out the orders. no i actually really agree with you on this i i like seeing as well and i think gilly water is the most you un- maybe unique one in the bunch but everyone seemed to fit the character so well yeah of course haggard ordered you know as much you know beer as he possibly could you know a little fruity island type drink seems perfect <laughs> for a small flit wick fudge with you know the stereotypical politician straight liquor like yeah that makes a lot of sense gilly water i don't really know what that is but it works sounds like something mcgonagall would like sure yeah although i feel like she's more badass than her drink choice well that's just proof so that your drink choice doesn't necessarily mean anything about you you know a lot of people think just drinking straight rum is you know the sign of you know it's a manly man drink and we know fudge is anything but a manly man also, she is in the presence of the Minister of Magic. So it's possible that she's like, hey, I'm keeping it cool. <laughs> Tone down the drink order to not show him up? Well, not that. Just like I'm in the presence of, not that I would care about what I was doing in front of the current occupant of the White House. But let's say I was having a drink with President Obama. I'd probably be like, let's not get wasted. and Let's present a nice sure. front here. So perhaps right. that's how she's thinking about it. Okay, that's fair. Probably got ahead of myself here, but that's okay. I like talking about this bit. But more importantly, plot-wise, we hear all about the serious Black matter. And we hear about what that group thinks happened. So we're going to go through what we learned from that group here. We learned that Sirius Black and James Potter were friends. True. We learned that they had a similar vibe to Fred and George Weasley. Also probably true. We learned that Black was the best man when James married Lily. True. 
True. Yep. We learned that Sirius is Harry's godfather. True. True. We learned that the Potters knew that Voldemort were after them and they went into hiding. True. True. And that Sirius was their secret keeper. Mm. <laughs> Hold on uh, a second. This is where things start to unravel. <laughs> um, they talk about the the fiddleless charm. Did I get that wrong? I probably got it wrong. I think it's, it's right. Fiddleless. We're going to go it, it with that. Right. Someone feel free to correct us. Um, Dumbledore was worried about Sirius being the secret keeper, but James was adamant that it would be Sirius, that Sirius would rather die than give them up to Voldemort, which is probably true. <laughs> um, Dumbledore believed that someone close to the Potters had been informing Voldemort of their movements, also true. And then within a week when the charm was performed, they were murdered, probably also true. Um, but the way this was framed was that Sirius Black became a secret keeper and betrayed them not even a week after the charm was performed. And it's incredible because with the information they have available to them with what they believe to be the true information, the dots all connect. It all makes sense. This and is a can... good story. Yeah, I mean, this, right. it's, this is not like shooting. At, it's not out of nowhere that they put this together. No, it makes a lot of sense with the information available to them. And it goes to show how one small misunderstanding, one small gap in your knowledge can have a major impact on the connections you make and how you figure things out. Everything made sense based on the information they had. If they understood that Black wasn't the secret keeper, they would have recognized everything was different and that their conclusions made no sense. Of course. We know that that that's also the case with Hagrid. He's really upset because at that time with the information he had, he felt really bad for Sirius. He, he comforted him. And when Sirius offered Hagrid his motorbike, he took it. And when Sirius asked Hagrid, let me take Harry, he's my godfather. Hagrid said, no, I have orders from Dumbledore. And that was a good decision. Knowing what Hagrid knows in this current book, right? Because as Hagrid knows that the second Sirius is a mass murder. In the moment, Sirius was a best friend and ally in a moment, you know, in the order of the Phoenix. So I think that these tiny plot holes are actually huge plot holes that, you know, they need to fill in to understand the full truth. And I do think it's human nature that that we fill everything in with what we know. That's that's how we act. Yeah, absolutely. So we also learned that Peter Pettigrew found him, another friend of the Potters, and that Pettigrew went after Black himself. He was described as a fat little boy, which is not very nice, who was <laughs> always tagging around after James and Sirius at Hogwarts, and apparently he hero-worshipped Black and Potter. Eyewitnesses that night say that Pettigrew cornered Black and he accused him of betraying Lillian James. And then Sirius Black blew Peter Pettigrew and the whole street to smithereens. There was a crater in the middle of the street, bodies everywhere, and Sirius Black stood there laughing. Only a few fragments of Pettigrew remained. Pettigrew, after he died, received the order of Merlin first class, and Sirius Black went to Azkaban. Um, what's interesting here is that the Minister of Magic, Fudge, says he did meet 
Sirius Black in Azkaban. And he noted that Sirius was extraordinary because he he wasn't mad. And mad, I think, in these terms is, is referring to crazy, not angry. Um, he was normal. He asked for the newspaper and said that he missed doing the crossword, which is interesting because everything we hear about Azkaban is how much it sucks. You know, it literally sucks your soul out and you lose all your powers. But Sirius Black was totally normal. We learn, of course, later, Sirius attributes this to knowing he was innocent, that it helped him regain his his uh, abilities and his mind, as well as the ability to slip into his dog form, which I guess calmed him down. Right. No, you're you're exactly right. But so interesting because, you know, as we were just talking a minute ago, because Fudge and everyone assumes Black's guilt, the fact that he's not going insane, the fact that he's not falling victim to the Dementor's influence is almost taken as a sign of just how evil and bad he is. He is so far from normal. He is so out there that he can't even be impacted the same way as other evil people, as other death eaters. And once again, the slight misunderstandings, the slight incorrect assumptions people make has such an impact on the way they viewed the situation around Black. It wasn't that he was so evil he couldn't be impacted. It was that he was innocent and it almost gave him a protection from the Dementors. Exactly. And um, looking back, of course, you might wonder what, why was he so different? Maybe it's because he wasn't actually a Death Eater and maybe they should have <laughs> drawn that connection and given him you know, due process and a fair trial. Of course, none of those things happened. And we know, and this, it breaks my heart, but we know that Sirius Black dies without being publicly vindicated. It's also interesting because we only know of, at least in the main seven books, I think, one other instance of someone who was truly innocent going to Azkaban, and that was Hagrid. But Hagrid doesn't seem, at least initially, to have that same kind of, I knew I was innocent and it allowed me to, you know, keep some of my sanity aspect that Sirius did. I don't think we ever get an answer as to why Hagrid was in, seemed to have been impacted more than Sirius. Maybe it's just Sirius was there so long he was able to figure it out, or maybe Hagrid was more upset over the situation than Sirius was, or some yeah, emotional Hag- reaction. Hagrid is over emotional. So I would suspect <laughs> that that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm just well, curious because we don't get an exact explanation. So we're doing some kind of guesswork. guesswork. In. Yeah, I think it's fair. Okay. But this, this chapter ends with Harry, Ron, and Hermione being shocked at what they heard over hearing these, uh, these professors and I guess the <laughs> Minister of Magic speak at a bar. Chapter 11. Harry, understandably, now has a hatred for Black. It makes sense to both Harry and the reader like why everyone's been telling him to not go looking for Sirius. He gets it. He knows now why Mr. Weasley thought that he was going to go after Sirius. He knows why Draco was taunting him because he wants to go find Black now. He wants to go get him. He maybe even wants to kill him. He has that anger. He has that hatred. He has that drive. Things are starting to click into place about why people have been treating him the way he did. 
Harry, Ron, and Hermione go to Hagrid's to talk to him about Sirius Black, essentially so Harry can find out why Hagrid's never told him the truth, especially considering that Hagrid gave him a picture of Lily and James's wedding with Sirius there smiling. You think that maybe would be something Hagrid wouldn't have given since he thought Black was responsible for Lily and James's death. But by the time they get to Hagrid's, any conversation about Sirius is thrown out the window because Hagrid's received a letter from the ministry. While he is not going to get in trouble for the attack Buckbeak did on Draco, there is going to be an inquiry and a hearing into Buckbeak's fate, which could potentially, if Buckbeak was found guilty, lead to Buckbeak's death. The trio, of course, are on Hagrid's side and agree that Buckbeak should not be found guilty, did nothing wrong, and promised to help Hagrid come up with a legal defense. You know it's going to be a star-studded legal defense when it's uh, Hagrid and three 13-year-olds, but we will see more about that. Uh, Not exactly my dream legal team here. No, certainly not, especially, no, certainly not. I'll just leave it as that for now. We'll get back to that later. Uh, Christmas, but now it's Christmas time. And amongst all the normal Christmas gifts that Harry gets, mostly from the Weasleys, he finds a new one, a special one, a broomstick. Someone sent Harry a fireball, the fastest broom in the world. Harry and Ron search to try to figure out if there's a no, if there's something indicating who sent it, but there's nothing. Uh, Crookshank shows up and tries to go after Scabbers again, which accidentally knocks the sneak scope to the ground and starts spinning and going like crazy. This is played off as nothing, as maybe the sneak scope doesn't work. It's been constantly going like crazy ever since Harry's had it, essentially. Uh, of course, we know that this is actually because Scabbers was there and the sneak scope was recognizing that Peter Pettigrew was not to be trusted. Speaking of Peter Pettigrew, we get a nice little bit about how Scabbers is looking awful. He's pale, he's thin, he is terrified. This, at the time, is played off by Harry and the readers alike as Scabbers, a rat, being afraid of Crookshanks, the cat who cannot leave him alone. And he's old. Yeah. And he's old. He's what, 17 years old, I think they say, and a he's normal rattler's older three. than a normal rat. <laughs> right. <laughs> he's older than, he, he's older than, like, Harry and Ron are. And it's like, at least they think he's older than that. He's actually way older. Um, but we, of course, know that Scabbers is looking ter- terrible because Sirius is in the castle, and he's terrified that Sirius is going to catch him. The trio go down to the Great Hall for for a Christmas meal and find that there's only one table there. There's so few people who stayed at Hogwarts for Christmas that everyone can sit at one table, professors and students alike, which could actually be a really fun like, way to get to know professors. I know I was always someone who liked to get to know my professors in school. I know everyone's going to be really mm, surprised weird. to hear that. Oh, Absolutely. <laughs> Big fan of the get to know the professors. Uh, well, now so I would, that's I what enjoyed this. I mean, it's fitting. It's very on brand for you because, like, right. now that's what you do. <laughs> no, absolutely. Teach college, and right? I'll go on that tangent for one more second to say that my piece of advice, if there's any college students or soon to be college students listening, uh, if you were ever allowed back in person college, make an effort to go to office hours, talk to your professors, find an excuse to bring up something non academic related. We're humans too. We like talking about sports and whatever else is going Harry on. Harry Potter. <laughs> Talk about Harry Potter. Absolutely. I've done that. But 
I also, digress. if Ken is your teacher, you should probably make sure you're downloading all of the episodes and letting him know. Yes, Maybe he gives he, like a, you know, a 10% grade increase. I'm sure he cannot legally Officially, do that. of course, I can do nothing like that. Unofficially, I, of course, still can do nothing like that. Um, <laughs> but he'll, to, he might like you more. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which won't impact your grade. Uh, <laughs> Going to get me in trouble here. So back to Harry Potter before I get in trouble. Uh, Harry, Ron, and Hermione are sitting at dinner at Christmas dinner when Professor Trelawney shows up. And this is unique. She normally does not come down to the Great Hall to eat with everyone else. Uh, she refuses to sit at the table, saying that she'd be the 13th person at the table. And when 13 dine together, the first to rise will be the first to die. Um, we'll talk about this more a little bit later, but she actually, once again, makes a correct prediction on this. She is correct on this. She just misunderstood the exact circumstances, much like many of her predictions. She also, also makes to be fair, I totally missed what Kenny is going to talk about in this later segment because I I I did not make the connection and I've probably read this book a hundred times. So oh. props to so Kenny. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, keep listening because we will be talking about it more in a couple minutes. Uh Trelawney also makes a prediction that Lupin will not be with us for long. Uh, we find out that he's sick again and a snake made him his potion. Once again, Trelawney is right. He will be leaving the school at the end of the year. This uh, is maybe- like the most, it's not even a lukewarm take. This is the, this is just such a basic, like obvious prediction because we know that this job is cursed. We know that the defense against the dark arts professor leaves at the end of the year, whether they're killed or fired or whatever. So um, pretty safe prediction. Yes. And we also know that the professors know Lupin's a werewolf, so it probably doesn't take much to figure out that Snape or someone else, but it will be Snape, will leak the information about Lupin's identity to the school, forcing him to leave. So yes, it is not the most out there prediction she's ever made, but I think we can still give her credit for it. She was correct and good for her. The chapter ends with McGonagall taking the firebolt from Harry, saying it needs to be stripped down and looked for curses and jinx. Yikes. Yeah. Harry and Ron are understandably extremely pissed. Harry was just given the best broomstick in the world, and now he can't even use it. Why? Well, McGonagall, on Hermione's advice, really, is concerned that Sirius Black might have sent the broomstick to Harry, and it might have been jinx to try to kill Harry the second he uses it. Good thought. It was only partially right. Though. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> dangerous. We know that. Hey, Alyssa, it looks like the owls are arriving with today's daily profit. So let's take a moment and talk about today's sponsor. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks. Ken and I at The Time Turner highly recommend Audible because they're the leading provider of not just audiobooks, but podcasts, guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, and their own Audible original content. They have everything we ever want to look for. My favorite romance series, Crossfire, the inspirational Becoming by Michelle Obama. I find that Audible is really helpful in my academic work for my day job. You know, I don't just record Harry Potter podcasts all day. I can download titles and listen offline, even if I'm running to blow off some steam or I'm in the car. The app is free and easy to use. 
As a member of Audible, every month, you get one credit to pick any title you want. Hello, more leisure reading and podcasts. And you also get two Audible originals from a monthly selection. You also get access to daily news digests, as well as guided meditation programs. But even better, with our code, you can get a free trial. Sign up today, audibletrial.com slash timeturner, and start listening right now. Chapter 12. Harry is, like Ken just mentioned, really mad that Hermione interfered with the firebolt. He is self-aware enough to realize, you know, she did this with the best of intentions and she meant well. She didn't, you know, I don't think he thinks, she thinks it'd be fun, right? To, oh, let's get rid of his firebolt. She's not like that. But um, he still got the coolest broom in the world and then it was taken away in a matter of minutes. Ron is furious as well. This is just unforgivable to Ron. I mean, this is something he can't, there's no rationalization in the books right now to get Ron to be okay with, with what just happened. Like, of course, this is Ron's really upset about a lot of things right now, but it's great. Like Hermione, one of his two best friends, is concerned about his other best friend. And that concern has led to Harry maybe not being able to use the best broomstick in the world. And for Ron, that's unforgivable. It's like, all right, right. come on. Which is a good friend. And I, I have my issues with Ron. I'm not the biggest Ron fan in general. Upon, you know, knowing everything that happened in the books, I'm definitely not a fan of Ron and Hermione being together. But in these moments, you're like, yeah, that's a best friend. That's the kind of person <laughs> That's mad because something bad happened to me, right? And right. I like that's that. what you want. <laughs> right. That's what you want in friendship. And I I mean, he's also slightly biased. He wants the Gryffindor Quidditch team to win, you know, those things. But um, regardless, he's very mad. Oliver Wood, the captain of the, Gritti- the Gryffindor, I almost called it the Gritditch, which maybe we should stick with that. Uh, the Gryffindor Quidditch team. That's accidentally what I was going to say, the Gryffindor Quidditch team captain, he came up to Harry to try to, you know, broach the subject of getting a new broomstick and Harry or Ron, one of them mentions, well, he got, Harry's got a fireball and Oliver's like, oh my God, this is great. (laughs) But then they explain that McGonagall took the fireball to strip it down Yikes, because they think Sirius Black might have sent it, and Oliver Wood's like, I'll handle this. <laughs> it seems like I got, a job I got this. for Oliver Wood. So he's going to go try to handle it. He will not win. But, um, anyways, uh, Harry schedules his first Dementor lesson with Professor Lupin, even though he's upset about his fireball, which is good. He's, you know, keeping his mind on other things. Ron asks Harry, kind of in passing, why he thinks Professor Lupin just looks so bad. Like, he's just not not in good shape. Um, And Hermione makes a, quote, loud and impatient tuh from behind them. She's like, isn't it obvious? And Ron and Hermione bicker a little bit. I I don't think it's obvious. (laughs) I mean, maybe if they did that homework assignment, but the whole point of what we're doing here is to go back and do our reread and make an analysis. And I guess we can, we can talk about this later, but this is such a small point. 
I've said this before. One of the reasons I love, love, love this book is that I really did not see most of these plot twists happening the first time I read it. And I, I mean, I had no idea what the silvery orb was. I had no idea. It, none of this did anything for me. So yes, Hermione's very smart for catching it. I don't actually think Harry and Ron are being that thick. Um, by not getting it. Or I was just really thick when I read this as a child, which is also probably true. It's probably, it's honestly probably a little both that, you know, it's a tough thing to figure out. On the other hand, they had an entire lesson and yes, a homework assignment they didn't complete, whose sole purpose was to make them make this connection. You know, Hermione's detective and deduction skills are light years above the other two. So maybe they wouldn't have figured it out if they did the homework. But you got to give Snape credit that he gave them all the pieces to figure it out. He, he did what he wanted to do. He put all the pieces in place and the smartest girl in the class made the connections that he wanted. Snape can be a very good teacher when he really puts his mind <laughs> to it. When he wants to hurt someone else and, you know, get back yeah. at a r- rival, he can be very good at being When he's a teacher. properly motivated. Yes. I mean... This is totally a tangent, but related. We know because of the end game that Snape is critical to the entire success of Harry beating Voldemort. Snape has a sense of job security, right? Dumbledore is not going to fire him for being like a jerk in potions class. So I think looking back, it's sort of like, well, yeah, he's a jerk. He's awful to these kids. He should have been fired, you know, every year. But they weren't going to fire him. So he's just, he acts like anybody acts that knows that they could never lose their job. Yeah. But he does have the skills there to do it well. We learn that Absolutely. Something we will certainly talk more about when we get to Half-Blood Prince. And we find out in some ways the, the full extent of his skills as a wizard. Oh, yeah. He's super powerful. Uh, But to continue on in chapter 12 of this book. Lupin's Dementor lesson is here, and they're using a bogart. Lupin teaches Harry about the Patronus charm, which is, I think, one of the coolest charms. It's very difficult, I guess, to conjure. Most kids cannot do it, and even a lot of like fully grown wizards cannot do it either. It looks unique to each wizard, and it only works if you concentrate on a single very happy memory. Now, Harry being Harry, he uses like the worst memory ever. Riding a broomstick for the first time. What a shit. Yeah, bad choice. But you feel really, really bad for the kid that like he can't think of anything, right? Um, Harry is able to produce a silvery wisp once, but when he tried again, it didn't work. And he hears more of what happened the night Voldemort killed his parents. So Lupin tells him he needs to pick a happier memory. He's still not working. And now Harry is starting to hear his dad get murdered, which is horrifying. Professor Lupin explains to Harry that he was friends with James Potter at Hogwarts. And he seems a little um, a little affected by what's going on. And he says to Harry, maybe we should quit. Like, this is really hard and most people can't do it. But Harry is very determined. He wants to keep going. Harry tries again and he uses a new memory, thinking about when he was told he was going to leave the Dursleys and he was a wizard. 
And a quote from the book, huge silver shadow came bursting out of the end of Harry's wand to hover between him and the Dementor. And though Harry's legs felt like water, he was on his feet. Though for how much longer, he wasn't sure. So very exciting. He was able to make very good progress on his Patronus charm. Lupin then defeated the Bogger with Ridiculous, and Harry has some chocolate, which is the cure-all, apparently. Not the biggest chocolate fan in the world. It's just not, just not for us. Right. Um, Harry takes the time to ask Professor Lupin about Sirius Black, and we don't learn that much about it, but he does ask. So later, Harry is thinking about his mom and dad and how he's never heard them before. And he has to remind himself, which I think is really smart. Um, he's remind them to himself that his parents are dead and listening to them be murdered. When the Dementors get close, listening to their echoes won't bring them back. And more on this later. Ron again brings up his confusion about how Hermione is getting to all of her classes. And Harry uh, really doesn't care like that it's just it's just really not registering for harry as something to care about <laughs> um and then we have a very funny exchange where mcgonagall tells off oliver wood after he approached her for about the firebolt he tells harry this for quote caring more about winning the cup than he does about you staying alive and oliver says just because i told her i didn't care if it threw you off as long as you caught the snitch first Honestly, the way she was yelling at me, you'd think I said something terrible, which I think is so funny because it was terrible. Because you kind of did. Yeah, yeah, it was terrible. I mean, McGonagall is clearly biased about the Gryffindor, what is she in the Gritich team? Yikes. Okay. Um, <laughs> and even she's like, you don't say that part out loud, Oliver. <laughs> right. That's what we think. We don't talk about that. Uh, yeah, it's 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 not the best look from a teammate, you know. I don't care if funny. you get hurt, just just win already, right? But uh, but it fits Wood. That he's yeah. always had that attitude. Very competitive. You like that drive in your Greenwich captain? I do. You know, it it harkens back to uh, in Chamber when Harkins? Harry's. Is that a word? Yeah, harkens is a word. Okay. So, so okay. someone can fact check me, and I'm pretty sure it's worth back in chamber. Uh, when, um, Harry's like, when Harry's dealing with the rogue bludger, and he's like, everyone keep playing normal, I'll deal with the bludger. And someone, I think maybe it's Alice, I don't remember who, gets mad at Oliver and says about how, you know, uh, says that he's installed in Harry this idea of, you know, win or die trying. And, and it's like, well, yeah, he did because this is his attitude. Win or die trying. That is actually how he sees this game. And it's not just how he sees the game. That's how Harry sees life. I mean, with ultimately with the end game, he either needs to beat Voldemort or he needs to die trying. And Harry will continue that, this mentality for the entire seven books. Harry is still practicing the Patronus charm and he's making progress, but he is, it's not complete yet. He is not perfected it um but in one of these lessons there's just a cute moment where professor lupin brings out some butterbeer for harry and harry's like "Ooh, butterbeer my favorite and lupin's like um buddy like how'd you how have you, you tried because uh, you you're not supposed to be in me, right <laughs> um and so harry does his like typical awful job at lying he stumbles over and i don't think lupin is at all convinced no, 
Certainly not. Oh, Lupin wow. clearly so, knows. Just so everyone up. understands, <laughs> Ken just texted me the definition of Harkins. So I guess I lose that one and I'm going to start using Harkins in my day to day. Just kind of subtly pulled up on the phone. The send, a, send a screenshot while my sister's like working hard and trying to make the podcast sound good. I'm just keeping <laughs> off, you know, whatever. <laughs> I feel like that's the benefit of a sibling-led podcast is that he's absolutely going to send me the screenshots of things that I get wrong. And he's going to tease me about it for days to come. But I thought I would share that with the group. I just think it's already fact-checking me before we even finished recording. I think it's, it's, you know, payback for you, you know, calling me out on a grammatical mistake, you know, what, two hours ago. So we're even today. All I said was that our podcast was better than your grammar, which uh-huh. is true. Yes, that, that is true. Everyone who's ever read a paper I've written could uh, attest to that. You're not bad. But in that case, the grammar was very bad. And you were talking about the podcast. And the, I wanted to make it clear to everybody, the podcast does okay. not sound like your grammar. Sure. Anyways, yeah, we're like, we're we're like two saying. bullet points away from finishing this summary. So <laughs> let me get through it. We learn about the Dementor's kiss, which is extremely depressing, um, about how when you're kind of sentenced to this Dementor's kiss, they suck your entire soul out, which is worse than dying because you're alive, but you have no soul. And Professor Lupin makes a really astute comment. I think, does anybody deserve that? And I think that there's a lot of parallels here too, at least in the U.S., conversations on the death penalty and um, whether that's humane, whether anybody deserves that. And while this is not a political show, anyone that's been listening for any extended time can obviously tell at least my political leanings. But anywho, um, it just is an interesting parallel. But we do have some good news. Harry gets the firebolt back. Woo! Yes. And I love that there's all these firebolt mentions in our firebolt section of our summary. Very exciting. And in this, um, excitement with the fireball coming back everybody's mood is improving harry talks to hermione about maybe she should drop some classes because she seems really overwhelmed but that ends very quickly because we see blood on a sheet and long ginger cat hairs oh no what happened to scabbers guess we'll have to come back you know and keep paying attention to find out what happened right but before that Let's first stir the cauldron and sip on some tea. What are our big questions or hot takes for chapters 9 through 12 of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban? I'll start with some little ones because I think we do have some big picture ones that I want to get to, but let's go through the little ones first. Um, Number one, Percy Weasley, Death Eater, is the (laughs) biggest buzzkill on the face of this planet, right? Like... (laughs) There's a sleepover, a co-ed sleepover when you're 13, which never happens, only in a case of emergency. The entire school is in this great hall. They have these comfortable sleeping bags. The mass murderer, so they think, is in their building. And Percy's like, lights off, shut up. What an asshole. Yeah. I mean. Not not cool. Wow. Which, it's just so unrealistic. Like, I don't care what age you are in these circumstances no one's falling asleep you're either terrified and you're up freaking out 
or you're whispering with your friends, talking about what happened, coming up with crazy, incorrect theories that are going to spread through the school like wildfire about what's happening. No one goes to sleep right now. It just doesn't happen. Right. I mean, that's just not a thing. And Percy is just like, it's like he was never, never young or ever cool. Like right. he was always just such a. He was an always an old soul. <laughs> old soul. Like that's not, I know old souls. He's not old soul. He's, he's just, oh, Percy. Yeah. How are rankings of the Weasleys? He is the last. Oh, not even close. Last one. Um, even with his redemption arc in the end, uh, the redemption arc did not do anything to make me like him as a person. He's definitely the kid that raised his hand at, you know, when the professor would say, okay, you guys can go. And it's one o'clock, but the class really ends at one He'd definitely raise his hand and be like, hey, just so you know, professor, the class ends at 1.30. You have 30 more minutes left. And everyone's like, oh my God, no, get rid of so this kid. So frustrating. Right. Like, uh, there's always someone like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, two other little things I want to point out. One is on Gridditch. What is going on with the rules in Quidditch? Why does the Gryffindor Quidditch team, aka Gridditch, why do they have to play no matter what? Harry could be attacked by the ghost of Voldemort and they have to play, right? But Malfoy has like a sniffle. And Slytherin gets to postpone their match? Like, is this, this can't be normal. Now, I am a Slytherin, so I guess I'm all cool with whatever helps Slytherin out. But it's just something about it does not seem right. No, it makes no sense. It's, it's completely, you know, hypocritical. You know, we see, we've seen multiple instances where the Gryffindor team either has had to play a man down or has had to scramble at the last second to find a player because someone couldn't play, but Slytherin can just, postpone their magic it's clear that the slytherin gryffindor is the new england patriots of quidditch uh a team that i quite detest so if anyone likes the patriots sorry not sorry but it's clear that they just get to abide by a different set of rules i'll, I'll throw another quidditch issue out there for you though um that harry gets attacked by a dementor and falls off his broom, and that's a fair and square match. That makes no sense. Like, I mean, it's the if, same. It's along the same lines as like, what are the right. rules here? Like, if you get murdered, you're seeker. Well, you're just shit out of luck, and like, someone has to find the snitch. I have heard that a non-seeker cannot find the snitch. Like, it has to be your seeker. So, hmm. what is a what would end the game? Like, they clearly right. don't have weather concerns. They don't have natural disaster or terrorist concerns because the Dementors. It sounds like they have a concern about Malfoy's health. Other than that, no rules. Right. But, and it's just like, you know, if I was at a, you know, football match, as an uh, American football match, and I ran out onto the field and tackled the kicker. I was just about to go for the game, winning a field goal. Like they wouldn't be like, oh, well, he didn't get, he didn't make the kick. So I guess your team loses. Like, no, I'd be arrested and they would redo the play. But a Dementor comes onto the field and not supposed to be there. And they're like, oh, well, what can we do about it? Right. That makes, makes no sense. 
My last bullet point, and then I'll turn it over to Ken for his questions or hot takes. This is sort of gross, but um, and a, a thousand points to all of our healthcare workers out there who deal with this on a regular basis. But there is a comment about um, detention being like cleaning the bedpans and the hospital wing at Hogwarts. And I am extremely concerned about what is going on at Hogwarts because if a student has to use a bedpan instead of a toilet, it means that they are very, very sick. And I feel as though that should be, you know, transferred to St. Mungo. And I also wonder, like, it's not bedpan for one kid. This is bedpans. There's multiple. And I know we, we did not go to boarding school. So if anyone is listening that did go to boarding school, and this is a thing that happened at your hospital wing or infirmary or nurse's office at boarding school that people were so sick there that they used bedpans, please let me know. I have noted that in where I went to school, I was a you know regular in the nurse's office, mostly like for naps and just to not sit in class kind of thing. Right. And everybody else in there was there for the same thing. I mean, it was like, I have a headache. I need to lay down. My stomach hurts. You know, it's very, I mean, there was very rarely anything urgent or deathly in there. And the few times that someone actually got injured, seriously injured, they immediately took them to the hospital. Right. They would not have stayed at the nurse's office. You don't have students like in a coma in the nurse's office in our high school. Where Kevin how many and I students, went. Wait, how many students when you were in high school got so injured they had to go to the hospital because they had a coma few. when in school? That's my Was point. there even one? I don't think so. Okay, um, well, I, hope, I hope not. And I don't want to make anything up, but I, I don't not. It certainly wasn't a regular enough occurrence that bedpan cleaning could be a, a detention. <laughs> But I I think we went to a really big high school and I have to imagine that Hogwarts is, even though there are more grades, Hogwarts is smaller than our high school. And again, we did not have students laying in the nurse's office that could not go to the bathroom themselves. So I am deeply concerned about the healthcare at Hogwarts. And that is it. That's all I have to say about that. All right. Fair enough. Well, we'll let you have this one. I, I have nothing to dispute it. So you're right. Yeah, it's all my, my me being right is saying it's weird, and this this requires further examination. All right, so the next thing I want to bring up is uh, we get just a quick one. We get a mention when Lupin's talking with Harry about Harry's broomstick and how it got destroyed. Lupin mentioned that the Whomping Willow was planted the year he arrived. Kill, so he's right. What he's not saying, though, is that it was planted because he arrived. The Whomping Willow is only there so that Lupin could get to the Shrieking Shack without other students accidentally following him. So a nice little half-truth by Lupin here that becomes a lot clearer on uh, rereads. Before I talk about the Trelawney Christmas stuff, which I know you want to get to, do we want to talk about the plot holes of the Marauders map this time, or do we want to save it for the next time when Harry realizes some more stuff? Let's save it because I can okay. see the time ticker of how long this episode <laughs> has been, and we will save it. But before we Fair get enough. to Trelawney, which I think is a good place to leave it, there is something else I did want to talk about that is more serious than my other comments. Go for it. The line about Harry 
thinking about his mom and dad and how he's never heard them before. And even though he, he has this narrative about they're dead, hearing them won't bring them back. He needs to get his head on straight. And I wanted to draw a connection here to the resurrection stone in the Deathly Hollows, book seven, where that concept that Harry has to understand dead people are dead. They stay dead. They're not to be brought back and you cannot dwell on them. That is something that Harry doesn't really accept until the very, very end of the series. That acceptance of understanding that he can't do that, he can't bring these people back, that keeps him alive, right? That That is how he becomes the master of death. And I think as a reader, it's very easy to say, well, obviously, right? But for someone like Harry, who's by the end of the series, almost everybody he's ever loved as a parental figure, and then some as friends and teachers and people he knew and respected, they're almost all of them die. Like there's so much death in Harry's life. It would be so easy for him to get lost in a fantasy of either being dead with them or bringing them back. And I think it is really astute and um, inspirational. I mean, I get chills when I talk about it because I, I actually really like Harry as a character. I know people shit on him for being kind of dumb and he has his moments, but I think his bravery and his understanding of death and how he's able to act despite the horrors and trauma that he goes through for his entire life. The fact that he's 13 and he's already saying they're dead and hearing them won't bring them back, even though he has no memories of his parents. My hot take here is just Harry Potter is actually a very underrated character that his emotional fortitude is not respected enough. Okay. I, I, I get that. And I'll just add to it by saying that ideas about bringing back people from the dead are in, if my quick calcul, if my quick kind of memory in my head's correct, I think, what, maybe six of the seven books? Because we have, you know, the Mirror of Air said in book one, where Harry first sees his parents and Dumbledore has to tell him they're not real. Like, you can't dwell on this. Uh, Chamber of Secrets, you have kind of almost the reverse of it, where you have the echo of Voldemort in the shape of Tom Riddle come back, where he's actually trying to come back, but he, but he ends up not being able to. Whether he, whether he would have been able to Harry and destroy the diary is, of course, an unanswerable question. We have what we're talking about in Prisoner. In Goblet, Harry sees the ghost of his parents in the graveyard. In Order of the Phoenix, he refuses at first to believe that Sirius is gone. He goes to nearly have this Nick to be like, great, so like when Sirius' ghost is going to show up, Nick has to tell him he's not going to be a ghost. He's moved on. He's not coming back. You don't really have it in Half-Blood, but then you have it, of course, uh, as a big part in Deathly Hollows. So this is a theme that is constantly there, almost every single book. Harry gets some lesson related to the dead coming back and recognizing that that's not how it works. Exactly. Um, And I think that's really important. It's the difference between Harry and Voldemort. Voldemort's completely obsessed with immortality. And we see that in almost every book. Um, So I think it is 
it's worth mentioning. And this, you know, this book starts out as a children's book, like this, the series, and it transitions to a young adult book. But I think the reason it's one of the reasons it's transcended general generations, right, is that it has these deep themes. And so I do think we sometimes don't give Harry enough credit for being able to handle all these deaths and still understand there when you're dead, you're dead. And that's not the worst thing that can happen to a person. Yeah, absolutely. So with that, let us, let us wrap up with Kenny's crazy take on the 13 people sitting at the table and divination. Yeah. Let me first say, I don't think it's that crazy of a take. Um, I've seen it in other places. I did not create this take as much as I'd love to take credit for it. So I think that other people believe it as well, not just me, but essentially what I'm talking about here is, as we talked about in the recap, Trawani refused to sit because she'd be the 13th person. And when some, when 13 dine together, the first two rises will die first. Um, what Trawani gets right, but misses is that there actually were already 13 people at the table. There were the 12 that Trawani and everyone else recognizes there, but Scabbers is actually there in Ron's pocket during the entire meal, which means there are 13 people at the table. So when Dumbledore rose to greet Trawani and to essentially say, welcome, come sit with us, he was actually the first to rise of the 13 that were dining together. And as we'll see, he is of those 13, the first to die. So once again, Trawani is right that when 13 uh, dined together, the first that rose died. It was Dumbledore. We just didn't realize it was him. And this is one of those things that even once you knew that Scabbers was Pettigrew, I at least, and I think most people who buy this theory at least, still didn't realize that Dumbledore's death sentence had already been set. We already knew he was going to be the first secret to die because of this prediction. We didn't have the foresight to go back and make that connection. It's really an incredible pack, uh, passage to go back and look on with this kind of knowledge of everything that happens afterwards. Yeah, I had no idea about this count. And I read all sorts of Harry Potter theories and conspiracies. And I've been reading this for years. And this was brand new to me. And I, when Kenny and I were first prepping for this episode, I thought he was the most brilliant person alive for thinking of this. And I am very disappointed <laughs> that someone else thought of this first. You can still think of the most brilliant person alive. I'm okay with no, that. No, that ship has sailed, unfortunately. Yeah, no, well. Okay, I tried. But I do like this take, and um, I think it's it's interesting and something I didn't think about before. But I, you know, she got it right again. Yeah, Toronto's doing very well. She she deserves more credit than she gets. Of course, the concept that we will talk about in future books at the end of this book and in future books when she makes some very real prophecies. Exactly. So with that, I think we can wrap up today's episode and get ready for the next couple chapters of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Per usual, please rate us, download, subscribe, do all the things. Find us on social media at Time Turner Pod. We'd love to hear your feedback and your thoughts. 
Yes, th- thank you all for listening. If you are looking for me or Alyssa, we will be off in Hogsmeade getting some jelly slugs some and some acid pops to enjoy our time off. Thank you all and see you next time.